Zone, podcasts featuring interviews and commentary from Animal Rights Zone, the online social network for humans who seek justice for other animals. You can find us on the web at www.arzone.net. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. In today's episode, Tim Guy and I are pleased to welcome to AR Zone the Executive Director of Animal Charity Evaluators, John Bockman. According to their website, www.animalcharityevaluators.org, Animal Charity Evaluators, or ACE, is a non-profit dedicated to finding and advocating highly effective opportunities for improving the lives of animals. John Bockman serves as their Executive Director. John has held leadership positions at various animal advocacy groups over the past 10 years, including having managed two wildlife rehabilitation centres and serving as a humane investigator in Illinois. John joined the team at Animal Charity Evaluators in 2013, and his work there is what we'll focus on today. Hi, John. Thanks for joining us today in AR Zone. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. John, before we talk about the work you're doing with ACE, would you please tell us what it is that caused you to become a vegan and to dedicate so much of your life and your time to advocating on behalf of other animals? Gladly. I actually became vegetarian my senior year in college after receiving a booklet from a vegan outreach, outreach leaf litter, Joe Espinoza, on our college campus. Uh, at the time, I didn't know any vegetarians or vegans at the college I was at, and didn't really know much about the the cause at all, uh, but the leaflet that I got was the Even If You Like Meat booklet from Vegan Outreach, with which, if you're familiar with it, says, even if you like meat, you can help spare the suffering of uh, thousands of animals. And that concept really resonated with me when I read that, because not knowing any vegetarians or not knowing any vegans, the concept of not eating meat ever again, or eggs, or, or milk, or cheese, was extremely scary. So the idea that I could make a big difference just by cutting back was, was very appealing. Uh, I made uh, a couple weeks of cutbacks after I got that flyer, and about a month later I was vegetarian, and a year after that I went vegan. John, I find that really interesting, because that, that particular flyer has had a lot of criticism, hasn't it, in from within the vegan community. Um, one of the criticisms that I've been hearing particularly recently is that um, by asking people to cut down on their consumption of other animals or even asking people to become vegetarian, what we're actually doing is asking them to continue with their exploitation of other animals, that we should be asking them to, to go vegan and nothing else and anything else is, is, is us being a sellout. How would you respond to that based particularly on your circumstances? Well, I think there's certainly that viewpoint out there, and, and I certainly understand it. I think once we get to a larger percentage of the population that is vegetarian and vegan, that the concept of going vegan won't be as intimidating to mainstream people. However, at the current point in time with the uh, fairly small percentage of the population that is vegetarian or vegan, I think there are a lot of people out there like me that... Uh, don't really have a connection to someone who's vegetarian or vegan, so they don't realize that it's not a big sacrifice, that, in fact, you're opening your palate to a wide array of cuisine that you otherwise wouldn't have experienced. And, unfortunately, 
that means that we, in my opinion, should shy away from necessarily saying go vegan, go vegan, go vegan. Uh, instead, I feel that it's it's better to meet people where they are currently. I feel that we should try and get people to take a step in the right direction because that puts them one pace closer to the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do here, which is get them to adopt a, a, a diet free of cruelty. I think there is certainly that perspective that we're advocating eating meat products by saying asking people to reduce, but I, I just don't think that that holds water uh, based on the research that's been shown, uh, research that people like uh, Nick Cooney have pointed out in his book, uh, um, not veganomics, but change of heart, that if we ask people to take a small step, then they're much more likely to make the bigger step later on. And that's something that I believe in. And that's something that I believe in as a result of my own personal experience. So I, I definitely don't think it's cut and dry, though. I don't want to say that my way or the highway, but I do think that there's definitely some merit to that perspective. It's certainly something that's well worth considering, isn't it? Absolutely. John, when you said that you got the pamphlet, was there was there anything between getting the pamphlet and you becoming vegetarian? Did you like were were you approached again by people? Did people have to tell you what you needed to do or did you just after you got the pamphlet, did you did you sort it out on your own or how did you go about like connecting those dots? I mean, you may not remember in great detail, of course, but I'm just wondering if you have a sense of how that worked. Well, I know in, in psychology, which is, which is what I studied through college, that in general there's always a debate about how many touches people need to have before something really sinks in, and, and a, lot of th- a lot of the times the, the, the thought is that you need 7 or 10 or 15 touches of something before, before uh, the, the point really gets across. For myself, uh, seeing the pamphlet and then bringing it home with me and reading through it, I started doing some of my own investigations. So I went online and I looked up uh, some videos. I looked up uh, some of the facts that Vegan Outreach was claiming in their booklet because I wanted to see if they were accurate. Uh, My immediate reaction to things like that is speculative, that they're exaggerating the truth and and things like that. And when when I found what I found and that it confirmed what I had seen in the Vegan Outreach booklet, I was, I was sold on the idea. I think something that for me happened to make the change a little uh, easier, I guess, was that this happened uh, near the end of my senior year at college. And right after that, I decided, uh, interestingly enough, I suppose, that I, after spending four years studying psychology and English that I, I wanted to work with animals as opposed to people. And so I went and got a job at a wildlife rehabilitation center and the director was vegan. And it, the topic actually came up the, the very first day I started there. And knowing then that there, oh, here's another normal person who just happens to be vegan, I feel that kind of gave me a, my own little mini support network that what I was doing the things that I was looking into were valid and and worth pursuing. And I think that's something that a lot of people 
fail to consider. At ACE, we are focusing on doing some research on, on various types of interventions to determine which ones are the most effective so that animal advocates can go out there and engage in those types of interventions. However, one thing that we will fail to consider, or not ACE specifically, but us as activists when we're trying to determine what's most effective is that there are a lot of factors at play uh, ultimately in convincing someone to take that final step to going vegetarian or going vegan. And though we may not decide that having, for example, meetups, uh, vegan meetups or vegetarian meetups where people have a community that they can connect with and go eat and learn about vegan cuisine, while we might not be able to quantify and acknowledge that as, quote-unquote, an effective form of activism, it is still very much a part of the process. And, and I want to come on record as saying that it should never be an all-or-nothing proposition. We should never look at it that, okay, online vegetarian ads are producing the highest number of vegetarian starter kit clicks, um, so we should invest all our money on that and completely take it away from everything else. Because there are those 7 to 10 to 15 touches that I mentioned earlier that are going to affect a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And I think it's through a combined effort that we're really going to make a difference. That being said, I still think there's value in spending more time on certain interventions, which is why ACE is doing what we're doing, because we're trying to determine which interventions and which organizations are doing spending the most time on the most effective uh, interventions. So one of the things that you say, I think, on the website is that um, you use science to analyze the impact of interventions. And that's a, a quote. So what sort of science do you use, and how do you, um, what makes you guys qualified to, to sort this out? Well, that's a great question, and I'll, I'll come right off, the, right off the top and say that I don't see myself as being particularly qualified to analyze uh, research studies or, or, or plan them myself. I'm an executive director of this organization, so it's my job to coordinate the efforts of qualified volunteers and staff to do that and, and, and make sure things are working correctly. That being said, we've got a terrific research manager on staff, Allison Smith, who has a strong mathematics background and the tools that are needed to properly uh, design and analyze a study. Of course, herself, like all people, are learning the ins and outs of the position and what works and what doesn't. But to help expedite that process, we're actually working right now with uh, three different academics on a couple of different studies that we might be proposing in the near future. And We've also worked with a great volunteer team called Statistics Without Borders, which is essentially volunteers uh, from around the world that volunteer their services to organizations like us so that we can provide the science that's necessary to come to accurate findings about some of the research that we conduct. When we say on the site that we use science, we mean that we're not just using anecdotal responses. We're not just saying that, oh, so-and-so did this pay-per-view event uh, or did some sort of video outreach and it went really great, so let's, let's put all our chips on that pile. Let's, let's bet big on that. Instead, we're really trying to look at developing sound studies that account for different bias issues and, and things like that 
to make sure that we are taking as scientific a look at actual data, empirical data, as opposed to just using and just relying on anecdotal reports. That's important, and I guess what you're part of what you're saying, or at least what I'm hearing, is, is that uh, that you're at at the beginning of this process. So you guys aren't claiming to have figured out yet how exactly to do the work that's part of your mission, but you're committed to figuring out how to do that work. Is that right? I would say that's absolutely accurate. You could think about it this way. If we if we spent 10 years and all the organizations started doing research after research after research study on, on different types of interventions, we would just barely scratch the surface of what the big businesses and big organizations do when they try to sell the public their product. So there's definitely a very, very tall hill to climb here, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't start climbing. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. We're trying to lay the foundation and, and, and create a different, perspe- a different viewpoint within the animal advocacy movement, one that's based on using facts and hard data to maximize effectiveness. And I, I really think that's, that's the key to, to getting where we all want to go. It's, it's not those anecdotal reports. It's using science to determine where we focus our energy. So one of the things that I have a question about, though, is that you define effective advocacy as that which makes the lives of farmed animals better, I think. I think that's the, you, you, you as I read the site, and I may be wrong, it seems that that's, that's sort of the, if the group is working on farmed animals, you take it as, as a starting point that that is the most effective advocacy. So are you stacking the deck, so to speak, against <laughs> You know, or maybe a better question would be is are you open to the idea as you conduct this um, process of determining you know how to how to actually get this work done? Are you open to the idea that you'll that you'll redefine effective advocacy? Absolutely. Now, first of all, I want to address that uh, we wouldn't define effective advocacy as farm animal ad- animal advocacy, and it's very interesting that you you took away that viewpoint from the website, which, which uh, is, is great feedback for us in, in improving the way we present our material. We do currently think that based on what we know uh, about animal advocacy in different areas, farm animal advocacy seems like the most, to, it seems to have the most potential for the greatest amount of change. We are absolutely open to changing that perspective in the future, and it's quite possible that Research and data will show that there are other inter- uh, other uh, focus areas that potentially have more impact. Now, I don't. W- I want to emphasize that we're not saying that I, uh, again. That like I like I had talked about earlier in this interview that you should uh, go all or nothing in farm animal advocacy, and if you're if you're doing some other t- form of animal advocacy, that you're not being effective. I think it's 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 great that there's a multifaceted approach and that there are people in different fields, uh, different areas of in which animals are being exploited. That there are people out there advocating for those animals. I think it's it's absolutely great and necessary. Uh, what I would like to see is a reallocation of some of the dollars that go out there. Uh, for example, 
We all know that there are companion animal shelters which receive widespread support from uh, donors and from animal lovers in the area. That's an that's a environment where people tend to support animal advocacy. It's it's very simple to to look at your your shelter. It's something tangible. You see cats and dogs being rescued, saved from the streets, and adopted out to loving homes. So anything wrong with that? No. Absolutely, it's great that there are people out there trying to work on those causes. However, companion animal causes get the lion's share of all the money that's out there for animal advocacy, and that's what we'd like to see change. We'd like to see a redistribution of the funds that are out there with more money going to things that we think have the potential to impact a much larger number of animals, and we think that's farm animal advocacy. Uh, I can tell you a little anecdotal uh, uh, story from my own uh, experience, and I know I just talked about that we don't want to use anecdotes to... um, to influence the way we do things, but the anecdote I'm about to talk about has been confirmed by our own research, which you can view on our site. So I spent several years working in a humane society and in which we took in cats and dogs, and we did a cost analysis of how much it would cost to get take a your average cat or dog off the street and adopt it out into adopt the animal out into a loving home and when you factor in things like uh, shelter costs, mortgage, uh, food costs, medicine costs, medicines, vaccines, when you consider the length of time that the animal has to stay in the facility and the shelter uh, employee time uh, uh, caring for that animal, it ended up being an average of about $300 per animal. That's a lot of money to spend for an animal. And again, I'm not saying that we should not do any of that. However, If you take a look at the amount of money that's spent on farm animal advocacy, we could do a lot with that money. Now, I can kind of go through a little example here with you, and this is based on a study that was conducted by the Humane League and Farm Sanctuary a a few years ago. And I want to also be upfront that there were some issues with the study in terms of uh, bias issues but I still think that the study yields some interesting and valuable results. So they conducted a study on leafleting on college campuses, and they found that one out of 100 leaflets that were passed out resulted in a new vegetarian. If that's true, those 100 booklets cost $11 to print. That means for $11, assuming that a volunteer is passing out the literature, which is often the case, you could create a new vegetarian. If we consider that the average person eats 28 land animals each year and that the average person stays vegetarian for approximately 6.2 years, which is, again, something that we've uh, come to a conclusion about based on a variety of studies on vegetarian recidivism and the information is on our website, then those 28 land animals times 6.2 years equals 174 animals that are spared for $11. Now, even factoring in things like elasticity, which is that the reduction in demand does not immediately equal, does not immediately impact the supply in the same way, even when you're 
considering elasticity, which we estimate to be around 0.3, that would still equal 52 animals spared from suffering for $11, or almost five animals per dollar spent. Even if we dropped that fivefold and said it was one out of 500 leaflets that resulted in that, we would still be talking about an animal per dollar spent, spared from suffering. If you compare that to one animal for $300 spent at a companion animal shelter, then it seems apparent that we should spend more money on vegetarian advocacy. John, I actually had a couple of questions to follow up on with what you were just speaking about. Um, one, and it kind of goes back to what I asked earlier, um, you're speaking about vegetarian advocacy and if one in 100 people who receive that literature become vegetarian, then, then they would be causing less damage. There's another train of thought that says that if a person becomes vegetarian they're actually and, and stays as a vegetarian, they're actually causing more damage because they're increasing their consumption of cheese and, and dairy products, eggs, and that sort of thing. So I'm assuming that that's something that you've given careful consideration to, um, and um, I'd be interested in, in what your reaction is to that. Absolutely, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, I admit, but the vast majority of the suffering caused on factory farms actually comes from people who either eat chicken or fish or who uh, consume eggs. A very, very small percentage of suffering of animals on factory farms actually comes from dairy and cheese, and and even... Uh, I, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I can tell you that the vast majority of of suffering actually comes from those who are ingesting uh, chickens. So by getting people to go vegetarian, we're eliminating the vast majority of the suffering on the factory farm in that respect. And I also want to say on that respect that given my own situation, again, I think vegetarianism is a stepping stone to veganism for a lot of people and that exploring the vegetarian options, uh, once you become vegetarian, I feel at least, again, in my own experience and, and many ex other people's experience who I know, you almost develop a new friend set. You develop a different social community, one who's more into vegetarian uh, a culture. And because of that, it becomes that much more easy to not only uphold your vegetarian lifestyle, but to make that next transition to the next step. So I think there's a lot of good to be said for it, even if there are some temporary increases in uh, dairy and egg consumption. I agree with part of that. I agree that once a person becomes vegetarian, they're far more likely to become vegan and to consider themselves as the type of person who could become vegan and as you say they develop a different social circle and I, I absolutely agree with you on that if vegetarian is used as a stepping stone I um I, I don't know really how anyone can can criticize that um, but when I asked my question I guess I wasn't referring specifically to um, so-called factory farms I was referring I guess um, more so to um, cows who were used in the dairy industry and, and have their children ripped away from them year after year after year and then eventually are sent off to be slaughtered and, and, and used as, as hamburger meat. Um, so when I was referring to suffering in terms of a person who remains a vegetarian, I think 
that um, I think I disagree with you on that. I think that a vegetarian can cause more suffering than a, than a non-vegetarian. Well, I, I just think uh, in that respect, uh, I, I certainly see your point. I think in that respect, it just depends how you measure or quantify suffering. And that's not something that's easy to do or not something that myself or Ace has a concrete answer on how to do yet. We're hoping to to come to some conclusions about that in the near future. But if you look at the number of animals that are spared or uh, it, the, the question, I guess, becomes, do you look at the number of animals that are spared from, from suffering by someone going vegetarian, or do you look at the number of hours that an animal spends in a farm situation as indicative of uh, the measurement of suffering, or do you look at the fact that a cow might have a much larger brain than a chicken and could therefore experience a larger amount of suffering? There's a lot of questions in those in those three uh, hypotheticals that I, I, I just put out there, but I, I do think if you look at the math of the number of hours spent in farms or the number of animals spared, if a person goes vegetarian for a year, they are no longer consuming 28 chickens on average, whereas if they are consuming more milk, let's say let's say they increase their milk um, consumption five times, you're still only talking about about one cow that's affected over the course of that year. And I don't mean to discredit the value of a cow. I, I certainly uh, place high value on, on all farmed animals, which is why I feel that if, if you look just concretely at the numbers, and if you don't value chickens lower than you value cows, that someone going vegetarian will result in a net positive. Right. I think, I think you make very good points in regard to chickens because obviously chickens are one of the most exploited land-based um, groups of individuals, particularly those who are used for food. So I, I agree with you on, on the chicken point. In regard to, um, you mentioned... Um, the, the numbers, and, and speaking about chickens, um, every year right across the world, humans kill and cause awful, awful suffering to trillions of ocean-dwelling individuals. If ACE's goal is to get people to support organisations that can do the most good for the greatest number, why would you not suggest that people support, say, for example, sea shepherd? Well... For, for in Sea Shepherd's case in particular, there's a lot of extraneous resources that are spent on 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 uh, a smaller number of animals than than you might think. But I, I don't have the numbers for them in front of me. But I'll just answer the question in general. Um, a person who eats the standard American diet uh, consumes, according to Harish from CountyAnimals.com, over 200 fish in a year. And most of those, though, are wild-caught fish that are fed to farmed fish. Um, the, the, our thought on that matter is that while we do absolutely value the life of a fish and, and absolutely believe that it's capable of, of, of pain and pleasure, just like uh, the other land farm animals, the vast majority that are going into the food supply, either directly uh, as consuming it 
from consumers consuming a uh, wild-caught fish or indirectly through uh, consumers consuming a farmed fish who has been fed wild-caught fish, the vast majority of those fish are, are wild-caught, uh, you know, upwards of 99%. And we view that it's, it's possible that the life in the wild for those fish is uh, – well, this, this actually brings up a, an interesting point that, that harkens back to an earlier question you were making. We don't know necessarily if wild animals in the wild are living a net positive or net negative life when you consider the amount of pain or pleasure that they experience. Uh, it's really hard to be a wild animal out there and have to deal with, with predation and, and not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. And we, th- we just feel that when you're talking about the number of animals involved here, we look at those that are raised in factory farms. We pay particular attention to those because we're so certain with factory farmed fish, or excuse me, factory farmed animals, that their lives are horrible and they experience tremendous amounts of suffering, far, far, far greater than the amount of pleasure that they'll ever live in their life. And so it seems much more certain that sparing those animals is a very, very uh, large positive net gain. Uh, We're not saying that consuming wild uh, caught fish would be a good thing in any way, in any uh, situation, but we are saying that we're just open to the possibility that uh, the life of animals in the wild might not be as as happy or fulfilling as we'd like them as we'd like to think that they are so what i when i mentioned referring back to a previous question you asked i do think that in addition to farm animal advocacy an area that we'd like to examine in more detail is the issue of wild animal suffering uh, there are lots of animals out there for example that reproduce and survive by producing extremely large numbers of offspring. And when they do that, the vast majority of that offspring dies very soon after, after being born. And they often die in terrible ways. They might starve to death or they might be chased down and eaten by a predator and, and things of that nature. And so the idea of examining wild animal suffering in more detail is also very appealing to ACE because it seems that there is a high potential for alleviating suffering if something can be done to improve uh, that situation. You mentioned um, Nick Cooney and um, hit the work that he's done, and also you mentioned the Humane League and, and some of the stuff that they've tried to do to figure out some of these uh, questions about effectiveness and advocacy. And one of the things that you said which is echoed in Nick's uh, latest book, is the recidivism rate in um, people who consider themselves vegan or vegetarian. And I think Nick uses the um, number 75% of people who are vegan today or vegetarian. I think vegetarian, because the numbers in veganism is, are, are non-existent, I guess. But people who are vegetarian today, something like 75% of them won't be in three years, which is pretty shocking. And so... Um, when we talk about effectiveness and advocacy, are, does it does it really matter whether or not we create vegans or vegetarians, or does it matter that we get 
people to make large-scale changes in the way they think of other animals. That's that's a great, great, great point, and I completely agree with uh, where you were going with that. So, part of ACE's mission, part of our goals as an organization, yes, we want to we want to be the number one resource in providing advice to donors and charities and animal advocates on how to be effective. That's very important, and we want to move many times our budget to whom we determine, whom we believe are the most effective animal charities. But what we really would like to do, more of a broad vision, is that we want to spread a meme of greater concern for animals. We see farm animal advocacy right now as a good way of doing that, uh, based on the number of animals involved, based on the fact that this society currently is starting to really examine their food choices and ask a lot more questions. And the environment right now seems that it's ripe for change and in, in, it's ripe for diet change. And this is a great opportunity to, to capitalize on that. But when we're making our decisions on what we think is, is most effective moving forward, absolutely a key concern of ours is how the intervention that we examine will create greater concern for animals as a whole. Now, to that end, we are just now starting to look into interventions such as Meatless Monday campaigns. Uh, Meatless Monday campaigns uh, might be something where you're not creating vegetarians or vegans, which is not necessarily the best goal, but you might be creating people, you might be creating discussion on, on diet and animals and how those animals are treated, and it could be good in that way. I'm not saying that it definitely is, and there's definitely going to be a health focus for a lot of institutions that implement Meatless Mondays, but it's something that we want to examine. Uh, we would probably want to examine the, the impact of celebrities going vegetarian and using those or vegan and, have, or, and having those celebrities then advocate that message. Uh, for example, there are some organizations out there who will use celebrities to promote their message. And that's in a situation where the celebrity is going to, essentially that organization has created a self-sustaining influencer by having that celebrity go out there and talk about vegetarian and vegan options and 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 ethics, the ethics of using animals for food and things like that. So by simply working with uh, a celebrity who's, who's on board with that sort of thing and, and getting them out there and they start promoting it themselves, like it or not, a lot of our culture, a lot of our society lives by what famous people do and, and they create a lot of trends. So there could be some real value in, uh, in using celebrities to get our message across, to get to convey uh, a concern for animal well-being. Again, there are some pitfalls of that as well. There's the flip side that would say you have celebrities that go vegetarian or vegan for a week or a month, and then they, they treat it like a fad. They might say it's too hard, and they might give it up, or that might create uh, 
you know, that might create negative net results because the people who are following that celebrity say, oh, vegetarian, vegan, oh, they didn't like it, so now I don't like it. And, and so that's a real concern as well. So I'm not saying that necessarily either of those are the way to go, but I think there's a whole lot of potential, and it behooves us as an organization and as a movement to examine those types of interventions and those tactics to see which ones are really creating the ultimate goal here. Because we all want that. We all want people to recognize that animals are not here for us to use, right? That's our ultimate goal. We want people to go vegetarian and vegan, yes, but we want them to recognize animals as beings with rights and their own lives and individuals. And really looking at what is creating that sort of change is, is, is absolutely key to succeeding in what we're trying to do. Your focus of ACE has been on organisations mostly, well, I think almost entirely from within the United States. Do you have plans to expand your scope internationally? Absolutely. Um, this is a question we get asked quite a lot because some of our support comes from an international community. And we absolutely believe that there are great, fantastic organizations out there working in uh, countries all around the world, and we absolutely want to start considering them. What we are constrained by right now is resources. Uh, we do have one research manager on staff, as I mentioned earlier, but we don't have the funds right now to hire another researcher. The reason we need another researcher is because we'd like to take a look and all the organizations that are out there, everything that's everyone that's notable, and in areas that, uh, even and even those that are not notable, if they get brought to our attention, so we can take a look at them, and really evaluate who's doing the greatest good out there. And it very well could be organizations that are not in the United States. Apart from resources, the reason we're focusing on the United States is because there is more of an opportunity to do this sort of work in the United States, at least right now. There are a lot of groups here that we know well and that are willing to work with us. There is um, greater philanthropic resources here. There are more people that are interested in investigating this sort of thing, not necessarily more people interested in investigating it just in the United States, but more people interested in donating to animal advocacy, it seems, in the United States, at least to another United States organization. And basically, there's just uh, more opportunity to do that right now. But absolutely, if we get the resources we're seeking, we will be investigating international charities, and we hope to be doing that by the end of the year. Fantastic. I've noticed on your website that you have actually made some evaluations of organisations in other countries such as um, the UK Vegan Society and Animal Liberation Victoria here in Australia. What are some of the challenges in evaluating the work of organisations like that that operate in different political and cultural climates to your own? Sure. So what I would start off in saying to that is that uh, the, the very brief outlines and reviews we have on the site right now were made kind of as a uh, an initial investigation into some of these areas uh, about a year, a, a year and a half ago. So right now, 
we are actually in the midst of revising our recommendations and we're truly focusing on United States farm animal charities. Right now, we just conducted a shallow investigation into 29 United States farm animal organizations, which was definitely more in-depth than anything we have on the site right now. And we're actually uh, pursuing a deeper review for a select number of those organizations right now. We plan on revising all the information we have on our site regarding recommendations in the first week of May or second week of May. So that's definitely something we will be improving the amount of content that we have on the site on the organizations that we consider. Regarding looking into international organizations, there's absolutely a challenge in terms of uh, the the culture is going to be different. Uh, the What people in that culture respond to is going to be different. And there are going to be different uh, financial discrepancies depending on what area you're talking about and how uh, what what status that that area has in terms of uh, how developed they are or how much extraneous resources they have and of course how progressive or cons- conservative that that area might be so there's certainly going to be a lot of challenges but we absolutely believe in the importance of of looking at these international charities and we'll be happy to address and overcome those challenges as we have to once we start doing that it's a little hard for me to uh discuss the specifics of those challenges because we really haven't gone into uh, a closer investigation that we want to of international organizations yet, but come hopefully uh, later this year, we'll be in a position to have done that, and I'll, I'll have a lot more to, to write about that. I understand. Thanks, John. John, I think I heard you say that you just finished conducting a shadow investigation into uh-huh. a number of I'm sorry. sorry. Sorry, that's shallow. <laughs> shallow. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thanks for thanks for li- thanks for, cl- <laughs> thanks for clarifying little, that. Probably makes a little bit more sense than a shadow investigation. <laughs> yeah. Well, because it well it raised the question, and I think it's I, I think it's uh, it's still a good question. I hope, and that is, of the of the folks that you've done these investigations, are you finding that they're interested in hearing about what your results are so that they can improve? Are you getting pushback from them because they want to do advocacy the way they do advocacy? Well, that's that's going to be a very interesting thing to find out. We've actually literally uh, yesterday, uh, the day before this interview took place, started emailing the organizations who we conducted a shallow review about to to discuss some of the things we found and to make sure they're okay with us publishing that information because we want to make sure we're maintaining good relationships with every organization we work with. So we're never going to publish anything that they don't approve. Uh, but in terms of whether or not they'll be receptive to our findings, that remains to be seen. I think I think that will that groups will become more and more receptive to what we find. The the more we're, the longer we're around and the more credible we become. We've developed a strategic plan where we are trying to to take uh, a little bit more of a long-term approach to succeeding as an organization, and that involves building up our foundation and our credibility before really mass marketing and promoting our findings. So we're hopeful that taking the time to develop that strategy will aid in in working with organizations in the future. 
John, what specific recommendations do you or would ACE have for individuals looking to volunteer their time or otherwise advocate on behalf of other animals? Sure. So there are <laughs> quite a few things I could say to that. Um, I would say the top advice I would give to animal activists out there uh, is to choose your focus based on evidence rather than what sounds like the most fun or what's the most convenient or possibly a habit just because you've been uh, socializing cats at the Humane Society for five years doesn't mean that you, you have to keep doing that. And sometimes that means going outside our, our comfort zone. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm alluding to the fact that I feel you can make a much bigger difference by volunteering to conduct vegetarian outreach than by working directly with rescued animals. And I, I always want to follow that statement up with a conditional that it's not to say that I think it's a bad thing to advocate for animals other than farm animals. I'm certainly happy that there are organizations out there that work on other animal causes, and I think they do valuable work. But the issue here is that there are so many more people who are out there volunteering for humane societies or, or your local animal shelter where if they... If, if just a small percentage of those instead focused so, at least some of their efforts on farm animal causes, which obviously we, we view as particularly high impact, then they'd be making a much bigger difference for a larger number of animals. And that's related to something that we discuss on the site called replaceability. Uh, this is something that I highly recommend your listeners consider. It basically means how replaceable are you in your efforts. Uh, in this specific instance, replaceability refers to the likelihood that someone else would take a place in a volunteer position if you were no longer working in that area and do a comparable job to what you would have done. So if you're working a job where you're highly replaceable, this means that if you were to disappear, someone else would jump in and take over your position. Conversely, if you work in farm animal advocacy, which has far fewer volunteers than your humane societies, it would be much less likely that someone else could or would just jump in your role if you were to leave. I think that that issue also applies to the careers that we choose. And one of the career models where a person might be less replaceable that doesn't involve with working with animals would be something called earning to give, which I also think people should seriously consider and, and read up on as potentially high impact. Um, again, we talk about this more on our site, uh, but essentially a person in a high-paying job who decides to donate to charity can make an incredibly large difference, especially in the case of farm animal advocacy where funding is, is greatly needed. And uh, of course, uh, I, I wouldn't be doing a service for ACE if I didn't mention that we provide a needed service in this area as we're out there trying to provide guidance and advice to donors on where their donations will go the farthest. I also really think it's important to track your efforts when possible. This, this is kind of advice more for not only individuals but groups. Uh, think about what you can measure in your efforts and, and just find a way to do it. Even if you can't measure the perfect thing, uh, Tracking what you will, tracking what you can will 
give you additional information in the future, whether you want to decide to continue doing exactly what you're doing or change it slightly or change it a lot. And it can be useful to compare and share with other groups. Um, related to that is something that I'm very proud of that ACE has developed recently. We've developed a project called Survey Guidelines. Uh, this was a project worked on by our research manager, Allison Smith, in collaboration with myself and Catherine Asher, Catherine Asher excuse me, from Humane Research Council, another great organization, and including feedback from a long list of highly qualified volunteers. Uh, together, we've developed pages designed to help groups measure their efforts. The problem here is that the few groups that have actually done some measurement often use different scales to measure their efforts, which makes it extremely difficult to compare results across studies. For example, some scales might be quantitative, i.e. how many times did you eat chicken in the last week or how many times did you eat beef in the last week, and others are going to be qualitative, uh, similar to a Likert scale. That have you slightly reduced, significantly reduced, or not reduced at all, uh, chicken, beef, or whatever? And when you, you have results that those two completely different scales, it's next to impossible to draw any real comparisons from them uh, without some follow-up work. Additionally, sometimes well-meaning groups may word questions in a suggestible way. Uh, they might say that um, they might, for example, uh, give some indication early on in a survey that they're an animal advocacy group, and that creates a bias in the respondent, uh, response of the uh, person taking the survey because there's something called response bias, there's something called social desirability bias, where they want to try and either uh, appease the uh, person giving the survey or uh, look good socially, uh, respectively. So We've tried to address those concerns. We've consolidated questions from many previous study efforts and spent considerable time refining them. We now offer a range of things to help people measure their efforts, including a list of suggested questions, uh, specific food frequency questionnaires to offer to measure dietary change. Uh, we have a page on social desirability scales because that's something that we want to try to account for when we're doing studies. And also a page on general advice for conducting surveys and, and conducting studies. Uh, it's because we as a group believe so strongly in tracking impact that we created this project, and we are very hopeful that as, again, we grow in credibility and, and we build our foundation, that more and more individuals and groups will make efforts using these free resources to establish better standards in their studies, which will allow for easier comparison and growth as a movement. So to summarize, <laughs> I, uh, I would say that I would recommend people choose their focus based on evidence for effectiveness and that they work to track their efforts. Those are probably my, the, the two greatest lessons that I've learned of late. Thank you very much for that advice, John. For our last question today, would you please tell us what you hope the future holds for both you and for animal charity evaluators? Well, for I'll start with the reverse. For animal charity evaluators, I am hoping that we will become that global number one go-to resource for donors and charities and animal activists on how to be effective. 
I am hopeful that our efforts will be accepted by the animal advocacy movement. Uh, we are an unbiased uh, organization that is not competing with, uh, it, it, right now we're studying farm animal, uh, we're looking into farm animal advocacy groups, so I'll use a couple farm animal groups as examples, but we're not competing for money from the Humane League or Vegan Outreach or, or Farm Sanctuary or uh, Mercy for Animals. We're not competing for money with them, and we are genuinely looking at trying to improve animal advocacy as a movement, as a whole, and not just trying to necessarily promote vegetarianism uh, as, as an end-all. I, I like those groups, uh, and I think they do great work, and I don't mean to say otherwise, but I'm just saying that ACE fills a very valuable and needed niche in the movement. And my hope is that five years from now, we're going to be working with a wide array of different groups to track and improve their efforts. My hope is that ACE will be working with a variety of academics across the country and across the world trying to conduct some internal studies to determine which types of, of advocacy are, are being most effective. And I think that, again, ultimately, we're trying to create that environment where people try to be as effective as possible. So those are that's what I see the future holding for ACE. Uh, if things go as planned, I see myself right there with ACE uh, leading the way. And uh, I, I think it's pretty hard to tell where I'll be five years from now, but I can safely say that regardless of whether or not uh, ACE develops the way I, I see it and our, our team sees it, um, I will certainly be out there advocating for for animals. And right now it seems for farm animals, but that could change. What I hope to do is in five years from now, I'm going to be working with an organization to advocate for animals in the most effective way possible. So that's where I see myself in five years. Thank you, John, so much for that. Before we say goodbye to you, today, is there anything that you'd like to say to our listeners, or is there anything that we um, may have forgotten to ask you about? Um, it's a good question. Uh, I, I could go on for, for hours about <laughs> some of the things that ACE is working on right now, but I guess I would say that I would encourage people to visit our site, uh, www.animalcharityevaluators.org. We have tons of great new information out there that is not only going to help uh, donors decide where they want to donate, but is really going to help people, individuals, with their advocacy efforts. We have pages on career advice. We have pages on volunteering advice. We have advice for existing charities. We've got great foundational research section talking uh, looking at studies that have been conducted on vegetarian recidivism, on the effects of diet choice on animals. Uh, we've got uh, great recommendations, great resources, and I really encourage people to, to take a look at our site and engage. And by all means, please reach out to us with any suggestions on improvement and improvements that you have because most an organization is going to get better and become more effective by hearing the response of the public to to what they've they've done, and and we definitely 
strongly promote and and appreciate any feedback that people have to offer on on the way we're doing things. So that would be my my last bit of advice. That's wonderful, John. Thank you again both for being our guest today and also for everything that you continue to do on behalf of both humans and other animals. Oh, thank you so much, Carolyn and Tim. It's been great speaking with both of you, and I appreciate all that you, you both do for animals as well. So thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to AR Zone. Please visit us online at www.arzone.net and look for us on iTunes.